Laura Johnston and I got to spend some time yesterday with Stuart Musinski, the guy behind Kindland. This is a guy who spends his entire day trying to get people to do nice things for each other. I don't know about you, Laura, but it was impressive to talk to somebody who was so focused on just getting people to do acts of kindness. We'll be doing some business with him in the future, trying to spread the word. For now, it's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with Laura Johnston, as well as Layla Tassi and Lisa Garvin. Laura, were you as impressed as I was? Yeah, it was really nice to hear a focus on just treating people with kindness and civility. And it reminded me of our civil discourse project, because you can't sit down to have difficult conversations until you create a rapport with someone and just how they're encouraging people to do nice things for each other, for strangers, for people they know, through nonprofits, or just on their own. So hats off to anyone who is working to make the world a kinder, better place. I thought it was hilarious how he kept trying to sell us on it. Yeah, and you're like, no, we're sold. We got it. We're buying. Let's talk process. Let's talk process. Then he went back into salesman mode, but very cool. Um, uh, Interesting person. More to come. Ohio lawmakers ended up not getting what they wanted in a lengthy sales tax holiday as back to school time approaches, but the sales tax holiday is evolving. Laura, is it a gimmick or is it a too generous gift to some taxpayers? This is really interesting in that most economists probably don't agree from the left and the right, but they all seem to agree that this is really a gimmick and could be spent money spent in a different, better way. Uh, Since 2015, we've had this limited sales tax holiday that centers on purchases for the upcoming school year. So it's the first weekend of August. You don't pay any state or local tax on clothing that costs less than $75, school supplies less than $20, and school instructional materials $20 or less. Honestly, I've never really planned our back to school shopping around it. Some people might, but that's one of the criticisms is that this doesn't really increase spending. It just puts it all in one weekend. And it doesn't make people buy more. It just saves money on what they would be buying already. So they're expanding this though. So under the new two-year budget, they're going to not charge any sales tax on anything that costs less than $500. Between Starting on August 1st of 2024, we don't know exactly how long it's going to be lasting. We just know that it's not supposed to cost the state any more than $740 million in taxes that they would otherwise get. You're not going to be able to buy a boat or a car and not pay sales tax on it. No vaping or medical marijuana either. But otherwise, you could save your really big purchases because if you're saving 8% on a $500 purchases, that really means a lot more than if you're saving 8% on a pack of pencils. Of course, we've talked about the great need for childcare subsidies in the state. How far would $740 million go for that? I, I'm not exactly sure, but it would definitely get more it, you probably could pay pay a better wage to some of those people making an average of $12.52 an hour who work in childcare. And and that's one of the other criticisms is that this is helping people who don't really need it, that they can afford to pay the sales tax. It's not really saving money for people who are struggling. It does feel much more like a gimmick than something that is beneficial. And you just, when you look at the way the state spends gigantic sums of money, 
you really can question their sense of priorities sometimes. Yeah. Matt Dolan, he's the Sugar and Falls Republican and, and chair of this finance committee, said during a floor speech on June 15th that it's they're hoping it spurs economic activity and hoping that it brings people from Michigan, Indiana, Kentucky, West Virginia to come to Ohio to buy stuff. I don't know if that's really going to be a motivator. Maybe nationally, 17 out of the 45 states that collect sales sales tax have some sort of sales tax holiday. But I don't see in this story, and I don't know if they showed this, that the original three-day sales tax holiday was stimulating any kind of spending. Right. There's no proof. Yeah, I don't know if we've seen any results. Interesting story. Check it out. It's on Cleveland.com, and you're listening to Today in Ohio. Lisa, we talked a couple of days ago about early voting, but we have more of a statewide read now. Cuyahoga remains far and away the leader in the percentage increase. But what's happening elsewhere in Ohio? It's actually up all across the state. Last week, as of last week, 66,314 people voted early. That's four times as many as voted in the May 2022 primary, which was only about 11,900 people. It's up six times in urban counties, seven times in suburban counties, and only three times increase in rural counties in the first four days of early voting. Also, 113,889 people requested absentee ballots. Most of them were from urban counties, about two-thirds, and the urban counties are Cuyahoga, Franklin, Hamilton, Lucas, Mahoning, Montgomery, Stark, Summit, and Trumbull. So requests for absentee ballots are up 90% in urban counties. They're up 50% in urban counties, which include like Lake, Lorraine, Medina, Warren, and Wood counties, but they're down slightly in rural counties, which is about, they're down about 2.3%. Cuyahoga County had the largest early voting in Ohio and the largest increase in absentee ballot requests. And elections officials here have elevated their turnout projections. I think uh, Anthony Perlotti was saying, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw 50% you know, voter turnout for this issue one election. Well, this the goal of Matt Hoffman and Frank LaRose was to sneak this through when nobody's paying attention. And we decided we're going to do everything we can to thwart that, to make people as aware as they can be so at least people have a voice in this in this silly thing, you got to think that Huffman and LaRose have a sinking feeling in their chest because if this goes down big, it's on them. It'll always be tagged to them and it becomes a national story. As we've reported, other states are very much paying attention to this because if it works in Ohio, Republican controlled states are going to try it everywhere. If it goes down in flames in Ohio, everybody's going to look at Huffman and LaRose and say, you guys are greedy. You overreached. And it'll be interesting to see if this early voting will be sustained. You know, we have a couple more weeks before the election. Um, Aaron Ackerman with the Ohio Elections Officials Association says there's really no historical context for this. We haven't had a statewide issue in August since like the 20s or something. So it's hard to say what's driving the surge and whether it will be sustained. And, you know, of course, the, the common, you know, belief is that Democrats do vote early more than Republicans and that this may fade as the election approaches. But like they say, there's really no context. Yeah, well, there's no context because it's a terrible idea to have an August election. Former governor, Republican governor Bob Taft is out telling people don't vote for this. It's a bad idea. And they should never have put this up in August. It was the definition of sleazy. And I do think 
Ohioans have a basic sense of fair play and they realize that what's happening here is anything but fair play. Again, all orchestrated by Matt Huffman and Frank LaRose. It's Today in Ohio. In past years, the Cleveland Clinic did not fare well in rankings of socially responsible hospitals, but some of its facilities scored high in the latest report. Layla, which ones? Well, so these rankings come from the Loan Institute, which is a nonprofit think tank, and, and they grade hospitals on employee pay equity, cost efficiency, patient safety, and other, other measures. And this year's rankings have Cleveland Clinic's South Point Hospital in Warrensville Heights as the most socially responsible hospital in Ohio out of 132 that were ranked. Right behind that was Ashtabula County Medical Center, which is a Cleveland Clinic aff- affiliate, and Cleveland Clinic Akron General was ranked third. Fourth and fifth place went to two hospitals in Alliance. There were only only 54 hospitals out of 3,600 ranked nationally got an A grade from the Institute, That, but that included all of the Ohio hospitals that placed in the top 25 in Ohio. Number one nationally was Duke Regional Hospital in Durham, North Carolina, to place to place high in the loan rankings, hospitals have to avoid unnecessary care, pay workers equitably, offer health services in poor or working class communities, and they also need to provide financial help to patients struggling to pay their hospital bills, and they have to take steps to reduce medical debt in their communities. It, it was fascinating to see some of their facilities so high up because the stories yeah. we've done in recent years have really pounded them. They were they were terrible. And so to be number one in Ohio is is pretty good. Well, I also thought it was interesting that, uh, well, UH Medical, Cleveland Medical Center, which is UH's main campus, landed at 81 on this list, which is pretty low. And I would have expected Metro Health as their county safety net hospital to rank a little higher. They were at 13th. But apparently the rankings, they seem to also consider value and outcomes for patients in addition to those equity measures. So I guess you have to look a little bit closer to see how each hospital ended up where they did on that list, because obviously Cleveland Clinic value and outcomes might skew their ranking a little bit higher than than uh, than if they were just being graded on equity. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Laura, how many Ohioans will be affected by Joe Biden's plan B for forgiving college debt? 37,000 Ohioans, and they're going to get $1.7 billion in these income-driven repayment plans as part of the forgiveness from the Biden administration. So they're forgiving a total of $39 billion in federal student debt for more than 800,000 borrowers across the country. This is this fix. Um, Like, I'm not an expert on student loans, and I feel like they're very complicated, and that's why every time we write about them, these stories do really well, because nobody understands it really well. (laughs) But you have to be have accumulated either 20 or 25 years worth of qualifying months of payments to even be considered for this, and you'll basically be notified. So you'll be told if you qualify for this, basically. You don't have to take any kind of action. It's fascinating how hard the president is working to forgive student debt and how hard the Republican Party is working to stop that from happening. Yeah, I mean, it's like, okay, so this got batted back by the Supreme Court. So now we're going to do this. I mean, it seems he seems very dedicated to doing this. And the idea is that he wants people to be able to uh, move ahead in their their lives and go forward economically. And these loans are holding them back. 
you would think that this would be a determining issue in voting. This is a serious pocketbook issue. Uh, mm-hmm. when we talk about, you know, we talk about inflation being a pocketbook issue, but this is thousands and thousands of dollars, often the equivalent of a mortgage. And so if you have that and you have a candidate that's saying, I'm trying to help you, and the other candidates are saying, no, the hell with you, it would seem that people might skew and vote for the Democratic Party on this one. I just don't know if there's enough, right? I mean, sure, a lot of people are burdened by debt, but is it, and we've talked about this before, is it fair? Some people might not feel like it's fair, even if they have a lot of debt. A lot of people have medical debt. You know, a lot of people think you went to college, you should figure out how to pay for it. It's a lot more expensive than it was a couple of decades ago, but I don't know if it's that easy. But for this one, we're talking about 800,000 people. I mean, that's not that many Americans. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cuyahoga County Council confirmed a new sheriff this week, one we hope sticks around. But almost at the same time, we see a move to have voters make the determination on who is sheriff. Lisa, what is that about? Well, let's first talk about our new sheriff. His name is Harold Pretel. He was sworn in this week by a county council. He's a former Cleveland police officer, and his time there included uh, deputy chief of the Homeland Special Operations. He also helped develop centralized booking here, and he served as a corrections officer briefly in the 1990s. He said his first priority, he said, job one, day one, is that jail. So he's really focused on improving jail conditions and restoring trust in the office. He also will be reviewing the food service contract with Trinity Services Group, which expired in June. But uh, Council President uh, Chris Ronane is proposing a contract extension through September at a cost of $937,000. And Pretel has pledged to stay on the job as long as possible because he wants to restore stability. We've had six sheriffs that have resigned in the last 12 years. So on the other side of this coin, uh, the, there's a group called the Northeast Ohio Public Safety Foundation. They began a campaign called Safety and Accountability, Elect Our Sheriff, and they want to restore this to an elected position. They're urging residents to call their county council person and talk about a charter amendment. Board member Jonathan Petraea says they really, we really hope they understand that we're serious about this. And he believes that people on both sides of the aisle would support an elected sheriff. However, he sent an email poll to 11, the 11 council members, and he's not hopeful with the results. The only support he got was from Patrick Kelly and Michael Gallagher, Dale Miller, Marty Sweeney, Jack Schron, and Yvonne, I didn't write her last name down, I'm sorry. Come on. Um, uh, yes, are against it completely. The other five council members didn't respond at all. So Petray is saying if council doesn't act on this, they'll, they're going to launch a citizen-led ballot initiative. The, the good news is, if Pretel is good, he will be able to establish enough of a track record by the time this came up where people could see, wait, 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 our charter is working. I mean, part of the reason that we're talking about an elected sheriff is Armin Budish let the jail fall to pieces. And so far, Chris Ronane really hasn't fixed it. I mean, this food thing is amazing to me that despite the reporting on how bad the food is and guards saying it'll cause riots, they've done nothing to fix it. Uh, I think the council and Ronane should be sentenced to eat that food every day until they do. <laughs> but, but now there's time to fix it. There is an argument that the charter is okay. We just keep picking bozos. So if we now have a, a strong 
candidate for sheriff and he's given the the length of rope to go and get this done then people might not be so likely to vote for an elected sheriff i really hope it works we need somebody that's going to bring order to this to bring leadership to that jail and focus on it in a way that we have not had now for how many years well, pre and you know how where I stand on elected sheriffs. I think they should be elected, and we're the only county in Ohio that doesn't do that. And I know the McFall debacle and everything, but Pretel said, "I want to stay as long as possible." What does that mean? I mean, in two years, he could be butting heads with the council and the executive, and decide this is not for him. Well, yeah, there. The history, the recent history, is absolute dysfunction. The council has done really dumb stuff. You know, they wanted to build the new jail on top of benzene and. You know, they squandered more than $100 million when they needed it to build a new jail. I mean, all of that stuff is still brewing. But one leader, one strong leader can start to right the ship. And if this is it, if this is that leader, let's hope it works out. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The last time we they talked about a proposed new jail, the Cuyahoga County Council scorned the Garfield Heights site that County Executive Chris Ronane had put up for their discussion. In the latest talk, they had strong feelings about increasing the county sales tax to pay for the jail. Layla, what did they say? Well, county council members are, are very combatant about all, all aspects of Ronane's jail proposal. Uh, at this meeting earlier this week, they repeatedly balked at the idea of buying more acres than are required for a jail. They hate the idea of paying the same price for each of those acres, despite some of them being undevelopable because of poor drainage. And, and for that matter, they didn't like the idea of buying any land at all without first figuring out what the funding strategy is for the jail. And speaking of how they're going to pay for it, as for that 40-year sales tax extension, council members referred to that as a lifetime tax. And they said it should be up to voters to decide if that's a good plan. Council wants Ronane to to pare down his proposal. They suggested pursuing a shorter tax extension, or they suggested the county buy only the minimum 40 acres that experts have said they need for the jail with an option to buy more land later as part of Renane's big envisioned 72-acre justice campus, because council really doubts that that is ever going to come to fruition anyway. Ronane's folks, though, would not budge. Director of Public Works Mike De- Dever doubled down on, on Renane's vision. He said that the Garfield Heights site is an opportunity for the county to be strategic in buying not only shovel-ready site, but the the presumably, you know, they'd, they would speed up construction um, and, uh, you know, they could accommodate all their future needs. But Councilman Scott Tuma retorted, it's only a strategic opportunity if you can afford it. And affordability was really a major sticking point for council on Tuesday. Yeah. Council worried yeah. there wouldn't be enough money or bonding capacity to build uh, or renovate the courthouse in the future. So if, it's if really at a standstill. If they were so worried about their money, they wouldn't have squandered more than $100 million on the MedMart and their slush funds last year. Mm, That's the, true. the ultimate hypocrisy of this council. The problem for Chris Ronane, he has made some enormous mistakes in his first six months. He campaigned, leading people to believe without maybe outright saying it, although he did outright say it, I won't increase that tax without a vote of the people. So, And he told lots of people that, and they're all talking to each other. And the council heard him say that. So they're saying to him, hey, you said if you want to raise that tax, we should ask the people, so let's put it to a vote. 
and they're trying to split the hair saying, well, no, no, yeah. we said that about the Armand Budish plan to raise the tax, not yeah, my plan we, to raise the tax. Right. And no one's. Gonna- that's when we were talking about the toxic site. You know, yeah. that's when we were talking about benzene. Yeah, it's it's so disingenuous to to try to reframe it that way now. Right. It, well, I you know some people could say that's just a lie. So what he should have done is used the, the state of the county address to say, look, I'm going to go back on a campaign promise, and I am so sorry, but it's a choice between taking care of the wards of 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 the county in the jail or not. The only funding source I have is this. I was wrong to say I, I wouldn't extend it. I apologize. And I'm telling you, that's not my leadership style, but I don't have another choice. There is no funding. We have a story in the works that's going to show there is no other place to get the money. But he didn't do that. He's instead tried to mislead everybody by saying, no, I never said that. And everybody is throwing the flag. So he's... It, He's in a hard place. I don't see where the solution is. They don't have the money to build a jail. And right. no one's going to vote for that tax. No one's going to vote. That's that's also the crux here is that that goes on the ballot. It fails. Oh, it'll lose 70, 30 or more. No one is going to support a tax increase for jail. So what do you do? I mean, this is this is tough. The ca- I completely disagree with the council on the site. Chris has come up with a good plan for that. But mm-hmm. what's he going to do about the money? Because he campaigned on the people should decide right ugly business i hope the council sticks to its guns on that he needs to be held accountable for his promises you're listening to today in ohio cleveland is in the news every day for gun violence but sometimes it spreads to unexpected places how did bay village react to reports of gunfire in a park sunday night laura They removed the basketball hoops in this park off of Clake Road and they, they quote, abundance of caution. They kept the pickleball courts open, the playground, the ball field and the bathrooms. But they said they took the rims down to allow for some time to participants to cool down, not provide a venue for any kind of ongoing dispute. So they say that police are going to complete their work, review all the circumstances and then talk about putting them back up. This was about 9.16 p.m. at Reese Park on Sunday. Police from Bay Village, Westlake and Rocky River all came. They found that several men playing basketball had been fighting. There's a single gunshot fired. No one was injured. This park is right off of I-90, basically. If you're coming from Cleveland, you turn right, and it's right there. And it's separated from much of Bay Village by a five-lane road there at Clegg, which dead ends into Lake Road. So it's not nestled among a bunch of houses. There are some woods along it. And you see how this could be a spot where people could get into trouble. The the gun violence in our region is so out of control, I can't imagine it. Anybody that's been around for a long time can say, I've never seen anything like it. J- Justin Bibb and others rightly say the legislature has caused this by flooding Cleveland with guns with its gun laws. And the, the legislature says, hey, look, it's a Second Amendment. What's not happening here? And, and it really makes you wonder about the motives. Mike DeWine is the governor of this state. Mm-hmm. In cities in his state, gun violence is mowing down a generation of people. The legislature rules this whole state. They have cities where people are dying every day, and they're not even showing the slightest bit of concern. This should be something the people in the state house look at because they represent all of us and say, wow, we've got a problem. How do we deal with it? Mike DeWine doesn't seem to care that a generation is getting killed in the cities, including Cleveland. 
And this gun violence just is everywhere every day. You can't go downtown in Cleveland for dinner without having this thought in your mind that that Mm -hmm. random gunfire can break out at any moment. But I will say this. I mean, I, I saw some news stories on this last night on TV, and there are signs on that fence saying, please, you know, give us back our basketball court. And, you know, so people in Bay Village, are, some people are not happy about it being closed. No, well, that, that, that that's always the wrong answer, right? Let's take away the basketball court. Right. Let's deprive the residents. There's always a better way. It's the knee-jerk reaction you see in suburbs whenever, you know, kids start getting together. Uh, yeah, they did a, it in Lakewood not too long ago. I felt like we had similar conversation. But it's a, such a bigger problem, and I know it's hard to solve, but our state officials, all of our state elected officials, don't care. They just don't care about the death and destruction that's happening in their cities. I, we were talking about this yesterday, and I remember at the beginning of the pandemic when it was wine with the wine, he would often open talking about gun violence and the need for regulation and that's when he was still trying to get his package of gun regulation through and it seems like he just threw up his hands after that and was like well republican legislature whatever you want we'll just put it through and nobody in the state government is talking about guns in any way except expanding rights in the short term he could have the state highway patrol or the national guard come in and help the depleted cleveland police but but they're just not talking about it they they it really is the rural-urban divide. They focus all their energy on rural Ohio, and they just don't care about it. It's horrible what's happening in Cleveland. Like I said, I've never seen the like of it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Leadership Cleveland spends 10 months each year helping new leaders in the city get acclimated and build a network. I am a 2015 graduate of Leadership Cleveland. The latest class has been announced and includes some big names. Lisa, who are some of them? Yeah, it certainly does. A lot of people we've reported on, you know, at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. So it's a 10-month program. It starts in September and it goes through June of next year when they graduate. There are 65 people in the 2024 class. They will undergo training on challenges and opportunities in Northeast Ohio, building skills and forming relationships. Uh, Chief among the uh, class is Erica Steed, the new CEO of the Metro Health System. Also, uh, lots of women, lots of men, lots of mixes of profits and nonprofits in this group. Uh, there's Steve Glass, the CEO of Medical Mutual of Ohio, uh, Elizabeth Kirby, the superintendent of the Cleveland Heights University Heights Schools, Jasmine Long, who we've talked about. Uh, she's the CEO of the Birthing Beautiful Babies Group. Tony Sias, who is the CEO of Caramu House, and Gregory Rush, the senior vice president and chief financial officer of the Haslam Sports Group. Group. So quite a wide, varied class. I think Michael Baston is in there too, right? The, yes. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, what, what, if people that haven't been through this, they don't realize these are all alpha dogs, right? They're all the, the top people that are used to getting their way and telling people what they should be doing and, and, you know, being in charge. So they're all together and that's a clash. So on the first day, the first weekend they're together, they make you do the silliest, dopiest things working together. They have contests to see who can make the strongest spaghetti bridge. You have to, you know, dress up and do ridiculous skits. It's <laughs> it's like the touchy-feely weekend, which is humiliating. But in humiliating everybody together, it starts to build the bonds. So mm. it's, uh, it's a fascinating way to uh to go about it and you know i do want to point out the team i was on built the strongest spaghetti bridge because we (laughs) we had an engineer on it who knew what he was doing and the rest of us said go 
You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, Layla, who serves the best lasagna in greater Cleveland? <laughs> well, the voters have spoken on this, and the winner is Guido's in Ravenna. They got about 37% of 6,000 votes cast by our readers in our best lasagna poll. Stancato's on State Road in Parma got second place with 31.33% of the vote. Bruno's Ristorante on West 41st Street in Cleveland got third. So congrats to these guys. They even beat out some restaurants in Little Italy. Apparently, this is an observation of National Lasagna Awareness Month. (laughs) I love the awareness. The awareness of lasagna. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting how popular this was, right, Laura? This was one of the most popular stories on our site. Uh, And you don't normally think of lasagna in July. Right. I, we thought talked about ice cream yesterday. That's normally what I'm thinking about in July. But I guess if you're a lasagna lover, you love it all 12 months of the year. Well, I'm looking forward to the follow-up here because our reporters will then go out and sample these these top three. And I want to know really what makes a good lasagna. Mm-hmm. What What's the, I don't know, what is the so secret? there so many different kinds. Like you could have like a very meaty lasagna or a cheesy one or one with veggies or eggplant, you know. So I feel like you, you know, you can put a lot between the, the layers of cheese and sauce. But right. I think it, it, the sauce is the key. And I'm going to ride or die with Geraci's sauce. So, you know, and they weren't even in the top 10. But, you know, it's good to see because most of the Italians, quite frankly, are on the east side of Cleveland. Yeah. And so, yeah. But in the top 10, there were like at least four, I think, that were from the east side and two from Little Italy. All right. So we talked about ice cream yesterday, lasagna today. If we want to burst people's arteries, what are we talking about tomorrow? Burgers. Oh, that's not bur- <laughs> that's not that's not decadent enough. What about those giant milkshakes that we recently reported on? <laughs> All right, you're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for the Thursday episode. Thank you, Laura, Layla, and Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast. Come on back Friday to wrap up the week. <laughs>